friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. series, the book of Timothy. This is our last uh, last week. Second Timothy is the book we're in, the last words, living faithfully in the last days. And it's fascinating because um, we didn't anticipate um, world events that would get people to start talking about the last days. Um, and, and so I love that we're in this because I think there's a way to reflect on what Paul's doing with Timothy and how he's encouraging Timothy to live and to look forward in the midst of our awaiting the last days, right? And so, so if you're um, a Christian today, you have probably run across um, someone in the last month or so who is trying to predict what's happening in the world based off of Israel going to war, and we're trying to interpret the Bible, and we're trying to do all those things. Um, and, and it's really interesting to me that, that rarely when you get into that do you ever land on how to live faithfully in the midst of those things. You almost always go to trying to predict what's happening in the world, that Jesus is coming back because of this, and it's like numerology, and it's if you know this thing, and these signs, and the wars, and rumors of wars. And rarely do you get to the last to say, in the midst of all that, how should Christians live? Like, what does the Bible say about the lives of Christians as we await the arrival of Jesus, right? When he's going to return, there is going to be a second coming where Jesus arrives um, to redeem the whole world forever. And so I, I, I just want to encourage you, in the midst of all that, um, I, I know we take uh, world events really seriously. We take what's happening um, uh, in our city really seriously, the realities of like earthly things, right? Um, but we also know that, that if we're not careful, um, we'll spend our time very concerned about the news, right? And as Eugene Peterson, I love he says, don't read the news, read the eternities, Right, Because the news is always going to be the news, and yet God's word is where we should be uh, storing our trust and looking for how to live faithfully in these days. So Timothy, um, it receives this letter from Paul, his last writings, and, and um, it's this beautiful letter to a disciple, to a son. He calls Timothy his son in the faith. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to look out for. This is the kind of person you need to give your heart to. These are the kind of people you should be careful around. Um, he, he just kind of lays this whole thing out. And this week, uh, we're just going to wrap our series with something that I think Paul would say is the most important thing. If you could boil his teaching down to one thing, I think this would be it. And it's interesting because I don't think it's what he is known for. Because most people, if you read Paul's writing, you would say, well, no, no, Paul, like the, the main thing Paul would be known for would be justification, right? It'd be like salvation, the Romans road, this thing. But I, I actually think this is the thing that Paul staked his life on. And he would say, if you get anything, get this thing and build everything else you get on this one thing. So we're going to read in uh, chapter four, if you've got your Bible, verse six to eight. 
2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Paul says this, For I am already, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's getting to the end of his life, and he's beginning to think. He's beginning to reflect. And he just takes a moment to, to say, um, of all the people around Paul who have fallen away, right? And his letters are full of, like, Demas deserted me here. This person left me here. This person did me great harm. It's, it, his letters acknowledge the fact that not all people finish the race. Not all people keep the faith. Not all people fight the good fight. They're fighting other fights. And Paul's like, never in my life did I divert from the one thing that God gave me to do. On this earth, he closes with these sentiments. And I think all of us would want to be able to say at the end of our life those three things. Like, I've finished the race that God's given me to run. I fought the good fight. And man, I, I, I barely, maybe in some seasons, held on, but I have kept my faith. I've kept my faith. So when we get to that, the question is, well, how do you do that? Because, right, we're, we're all concerned with that. How do we finish well? And, and we think about what are people going to say at our eulogy, right? What are, what are gonna, people going to say at our funeral? What's our eulogy going to be like? What is going to be the one thing that somebody would describe me when I'm no longer here, right, for them to feel bad about saying it about me, <laughs> right? Like, what, what is going to be said? Um, and everyone wants it, but not that many people get it. And this isn't just people who, like, blow up their lives, right? Who have some massive sin issue and they, they blow up their lives or their ministry or their business or their marriage. Many, it's just that their love grows cold. Like, in, in the long obedience, right? They, they just allow the love to, go, to, go, to grow cold. And, and, and they end up, as the book of Revelation talks about, lukewarm. They're not hot. They're not cold. They're just in the mushy middle, and I think that's actually the most sinister thing, because most of us fend off the massive you know, explosions of our life, but it's actually much harder to not end up in the mushy middle, especially in America, because like our culture conspires to get you out of radical, fiery faith and to put you into a private, your little relationship with Jesus that is just fine, do that in your house, think those things, read those books, but keep it there, right? So we have a friend, John Tyson, he would say, secularism is the privatization of faith. It's okay to be faith. It's okay to believe in Jesus, it's okay to do all that stuff, but keep it private. Don't bring it to the public sphere. Don't bring it to your school. Don't bring it to your work. Don't bring it into politics. But Christians, if you read the Bible, you're like, Jesus Christ is Lord of what? All. All. Everything, right? So that, that's not possible for Christians, to just privatize their faith. We, we, but it's, it's the thing that's pressuring us. And it makes me think of when Jesus tells the parable of the soils. And he says, you know, for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he falls away. And then there's the seed that was sown among thorns. This is the one who hears the, world, uh, hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of, of riches, uh, choke the word. 
make it an unfruitful. One, the word gets lost because of, of difficulty, of resistance, of persecution. The other one, the word is kept, but it's unfruitful. It just doesn't produce what God wanted it to produce. Um, it got encased maybe in, um, in a form of religion that we might call like American Christianity, which is the pursuit of being good and having like the badge of honor to be a Christian. And yet, so that Jesus says that with, my, with their lips they praise me, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus wants to own hearts. That's what he wants. He doesn't just want praise from lips. He wants to own the real estate, the most precious real estate of your life. He wants ownership. He's not renting. <laughs> he's owning. And he's like, this is what can happen. And if we're not careful, this can happen to us. Slowly over time, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, your schedule with business and sports and hobbies, you know what it does? It doesn't take you out completely, but it chokes out the power of the gospel of the kingdom. So you'll do what, what Paul tells Timothy. Be careful of the people who live with a form of godliness while denying its power. Because Christianity is about the power of God poured out in a person. That's what it's about. It's not about religion. It's not about just obedience. It's not about being good. It's about the power of God to transform lives, to move them from death to life, from darkness to light. And he's saying, Paul's looking at Timothy, saying, I just want you to be really careful because you're going to have to fight this fight. You're going to have to run this race and you need to finish well. How do you do that? What's the key to keeping the fire for Jesus burning so that you can fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith? And I think it's the last phrase that he includes in this paragraph. I love these words. He says, there's this crown of righteousness coming. It's mine. He's going to give it to me. Not just me, though, but all who loved his appearing. This is such a simple little phrase, and yet I think packed into it is the key to finishing well, to keeping your faith, to fighting the fight. Those who loved his appearing, not those who loved um, uh, maybe the, the politics that you can wrap around Jesus, those who love the religious things that you can wrap around Jesus, the morality of his teachings, they actually love him. The person, Jesus. They loved his appearing. And what's fascinating is you think about it, many of the people Paul's talking to didn't see Jesus in the flesh. So that means Jesus didn't just appear, he is appearing over time to people over and over and over and over again. Paul didn't meet Jesus when, when Jesus was a famous rabbi in Israel and a teacher and a prophet. Paul met Jesus on a road where he appeared to him and suddenly Jesus appeared and fall, Paul fell down as one who was dead. But Paul is saying the ones who love his appearing, the ones who want to be where Jesus is, those are the ones who stay in the game. The ones who have this like desire in their heart to say, where is God at work in the world and how do I put myself there? Because what I want more than anything else is to see him showing up. To see his appearing. And Paul talks about this, right? E even uh, before in this chapter, or later in the chapter, he says this. When he got deserted by every human person, he says, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. 
Paul's continually looking for where is Jesus in these moments. And Paul stands before these people. He has no one. And with the mind of the Spirit and the eyes of the Spirit, he looks over and he sees Jesus right by his side. He gave him strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul was noticing that Jesus is appearing in all these ways across the story of his life. Our kid said a funny thing one time about Amy's mom. Uh, I think it was Bon, my nephew. And he said, uh, he said, Grammy, he said, Grammy, I think Grammy went to the school of noticing. And his parents were like, what? What are you talking about? She's like, she just notices things. So Grammy notices trash on the ground. So if you ever see uh, my mother-in-law walking a neighborhood, you will see her with trash in her hands. Like Because when she walks, she picks up every piece of trash she sees. If she's in her home, she's noticing things that are just a little bit out of place. And she notices and she, she puts them back. She notices if you don't use a coaster <laughs> in her house. She, there's no getting away from it. It's like, like, like alarm bells. Like there's condensation somewhere <laughs> on a piece of furniture. And she like springs into action. I'm like, how does he know that? Like, I'm like, oh. And I just, I, I'm terrible about that. But she, she notices. But I think Paul went to the school of noticing. I think when you read the stories of the people who see God's power poured out again and again and again, you say, why are they different than everyone else? I think they just were the ones who noticed. They were constantly looking for Jesus to appear in every situation, every circumstance, in every uh, relationship. They were just like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to this coffee. Are you going to appear? Because I'm ready. I want to see you. I want to know what you're doing. They're, they're preparing their hearts Right, but Paul, Paul, when he's named Saul, he's on the road to Damascus. And as he neared there, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus. He appears to Saul on the road. And I love that this story became the base story of his life, right? They said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to, uh, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, right, where he's having kind of this, this uh, friction between him and this other group of apostles. And he's like, I guess I'm going to have to t- share with you some of my stories because I need you to know that I'm actually an apostle. And he says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, him, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. I always wonder about, like, what's first and second heaven like? Because it's got to be cool too, right? But he's like, there's levels to this thing. And I went to the top level. The third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows he was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. Paul is living with a consistent string of encounters with Jesus, of Jesus appearing to him while he's on the road and while he sleeps and while he's in meetings, while he preaches, while he prays, while he worships. Paul is is like this open vessel to heaven saying, God, show up whenever, however you want to, because it's what I want. Like you're the source of all these things that are happening in the church. It's you, you're appearing. 
So this is what I think God is leading um, our church into, which is the kind of family, the kind of body who lives in a continual seeking, asking, and knocking for the appearing of Jesus in our midst. That's what we want. If you'd say, what do you want for your church? I want the kind of church that the appearing of Jesus is the primary ask. What do you want? I want to see Jesus. I want to know him. I want to live in the reality of his resurrected power in the midst of the community. Because where Jesus shows up, everything changes. Where I show up, it's okay. Right? But where Jesus shows up, when he appears in the midst of people, and guess what? It's his promise that he will do so. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in their midst. But the question is, will you notice when he comes? Because sometimes he comes in power and everyone falls over, and sometimes he comes with a whisper and we ignore it. You never know how he's going to come, but he says, I will appear. And, and I think it's this... Um, idea we've talked about before, but we've got a lot of new people, so I want you to hear this, because I think this is really important, and it's the difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. And I think, um, and I'm not the only one, I'm not the one who came up with this, but when, this, when I heard this phrase, um, I, it just rang so true. As someone who's been in ministry for 25 years, I just think this is it. And it said, the crisis in the American church is we have settled for the omnipresence of God when his offer to us is his manifest presence. Like, we, we've settled for the omnipresence. Well, what does that mean, right? Because omnipresence isn't bad, but it's not how we're meant to live in relationship to God. So what is, what is omnipresent, right? It's God is everywhere at all times, right? Like God is all around us, wherever we go. You can't get away from him. He is real and he's there. So omnipresence is biblical, right? It's real. It's true to God's nature. God is everywhere. Um, but it's generally theoretical. Um, it's available to all, right? It's universal. Um, but no prayer is required. God just is everywhere. You don't have to ask him to be everywhere because he is everywhere at all times. It's generally impersonal. And it's, it's mostly abstract. And obedience is rare. You don't have to obey your way into the reality of omnipresence. Because it's just how God made the world. It's who God is. But look at manifest presence. I think this is the key, and you'll get the difference, right? It's biblical and real and true to God's nature, but God's presence is tangibly perceived. With your senses, with your emotions, uh, your feelings, uh, with your hearing, with your sight, um, with your touch, Right? Because God, when he shows up in his manifest presence, people have described it as electricity flowing through their body. They, they've described it as they start sweating. They get hot. Anybody ever gotten like, just like so hot? Like, it's just like God's presence came over and you're like, it's like heat, like a wave of heat. It's tangibly perceived. It's generally transformational. So, right, and this is the key. I just want you, you need to take the kingdom of heaven from theoretical to transformational. Because the kingdom of heaven isn't a theory about the world. It's an invitation into a world. Which will change everything if you cross that line. And you'll begin to see what the Spirit is say, uh, doing and hear what the Spirit is saying. Uh, manifest presence is normally for God's people. Does it happen to others, outsiders? Sure. But, but uh, the rule is that God shows up for his people in the way that he's promised. 
And this is where we have to be careful in flattening the lines between the church and the world. God doesn't show up for the world in the same way he shows up for the church. It's just not the same. God loves the world and he sends us into the world. Right? But the way he shows up in the body when we worship is not the same way he shows up on street corner. It's just, it's different. And it's okay that it's different because he's sovereign. He gets to choose how he shows up and who he shows up for in what way. It's selective. It's not universal. It's in a time and a place for a people. Right? So God chooses, I'm going to come in this meeting, in this region, in this place Guys, God's showing up around the world right now in really selective, really specific ways. Our friends, the Caldwells in Lebanon, he's like, you'd be shocked at what God is doing in the Persian church. Have you ever had a thought in your mind about the Persian church? Because there's no Persia anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? What is, what's the Persian church? He's like, well, Persia is basically a collection of a, 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 most of Iran, Iraq, a little bit of Syria. It's, it's like it crosses borders, but it's a people group that God is showing up in highly specific ways to reach this people group. And the church in the Persian culture is exploding but it's all underground, right? It's all in secret. They have to leave the country to be baptized. They'll literally take hours and hours long bus trip into Albania. They'll baptize people and they'll return in secret to worship Jesus, share their faith, highly risky. But God's showing up there in a way that he's not showing up in other places because it's specific, it's selective for them. Normally prayer is required. Sometimes God just comes, just shows up, but for the most part, God comes where he's wanted. God shows up where the people desire him to show up, where they want him in a way that is clear and he sees sacrifice, repentance, sanctification, like consecration. People are saying, God, we want you and here's how we want you. In the same way that people go through dating relationships, how do you show a girl you like her? Right? You start sacrificing your time, your money, where you show up, right? You get strategic with your life, right? Any guys in here? Did you do that? You're like, where is she? Where's she at class on Thursday mornings? And all of a sudden you go, oh, I just happened to be here. So weird. We just end up in these same places. You're like, no, no, you got up that morning. You set your alarm. You're like, she's probably going to be there at this time. I'm going to just be around. Next thing you know, I'm just the guy who's around. And she might like the guy who's, so it's like this thing where, where prayer is required. It's highly personal. It's specific. And friends, the last one's really important. Obedience is required. It's the, it's not the kind of thing where God says, I will show up in your life and do all these things no matter what you do. No, he says, listen, if you want my presence poured out in your life, you want my appearing in your life. Here's what I require. And, and can I just tell you, because the first thing you're going to go is like to religion and legalism. You're like, oh, that feels heavy. There is nothing he requires of you which isn't good for you. And which isn't better than whatever you were doing before. The obedience he requires is to bless you and to free you into love for him and love for your neighbor. It's always good. God's not trying to ruin your life. Right? Um, it, it's just not the, the way God is. Um, but it does require obedience. But we have to get to the point where we understand the presence and the manifestation of the presence are not the same. This is A.W. Tozer. There can uh, be one without the other. God is here when we're wholly unaware of it. 
He is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. So I think there's an invitation in these days to cultivate an awareness of the presence of God. His manifest, selective, personal, powerful presence that he wants to bring to bear on your life daily. And Paul's an example of someone who loved his appearing. And here's the thing. If you don't love his appearing, how are you going to love his appearing? Does that make sense? Like, if you don't love his continual appearing, how are you going to love his future appearing? And I'll just tell you something I don't hear with Christians very much anymore is a longing for heaven. A longing for the appearing of Jesus, his second coming. Because you know what happens is when life goes really well, we start to think maybe earth is a little bit better. Jesus, would you just let me you know, own a home and have kids and grandkids and retire and play some golf before you come back? Because this is actually pretty good. But if you go to the churches I was talking about before, if you go to the church in Iran, if you go to the church in, in Pakistan, if you go to the church in China, you know what they long for? Jesus to show up again. His second coming, they're like, would you just come back and deliver us from evil? Would you come back and rescue us and restore the world because this is not the way it should be? There's a longing Another quote says, the greatest tragedy in the church today is that we've confused the distinction between God's omnipresence, his manifest presence. God's purpose is for the flame of his manifest presence to be the power cell of the church. It's the single factor that distinguishes the church from the Kiwanis Club or the sports bar or Starbucks. The reason the church is in crisis today is because we've settled for the omnipresence of God rather than the manifest presence of God. Um, I read a quote this last week. I want to read to you real fast. I'm going to have to... Find it on my phone. Shouldn't take too long. It's about John Wimber. If you guys know John Wimber's story, John Wimber founded the Vineyard Church and really stewarded the move of God uh, uh, in many ways is kind of one of the fathers of modern worship. Uh, he was part of the Righteous Brothers, and he got saved. He left that band. He went into ministry. He started writing worship music that you could play guitar to. And he was like this jolly amazing, charismatic, Pentecostal weirdo in so many ways in Southern California through the Jesus movement and started this church. But it says John Wimber will be remembered for many things, one of which was his unrelenting commitment to doing the stuff. Like he said, I read the Bible and I wonder, why aren't we doing the stuff that Jesus did and that the early church did? Why aren't we, we doing that? Uh, so as John tells the story, he and his wife visited a church early in his spiritual journey. Immediately after he had spent considerable time, considerable time reading the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Following the church, uh, the church service, John approached the pastor and asked him, so when do we do the stuff? The stuff, said the pastor. What's the stuff? You know, the stuff in the Bible, like healing the sick and casting out demons. The stuff. Oh, the pastor replied, we don't do the stuff. We believe they did it back in biblical days, but we don't do it today. With a rather confused look on his face, John could only say, and I gave up drugs for this? <laughs> I love that. Like, do we live the kind of Christianity, and are we the kind of church that it's worth giving up drugs for? 
that it's worth leaving behind a way of life that in many ways can be really fun, even if it's just for a season, if there's a dark moment, but like, are, are we inviting people into an expression of life that looks and feels and is better than the way of the world? I think that challenge is really important. And I think it's really fascinating, too, because if we're not careful, we get drawn into expressions of um, church that, that cannot house the manifestation of God. Like, we, we get into rhythms and we get into, uh, um, you know, what the Bible would call wineskins, right? When there's new wine, there has to be new skins, and many times we don't want to change the skins. And so what we do is we end up getting new wine. We put it in the old sin. And what happens? It ruins it. It just goes bad. It's, those two things go together. And, it, and, it, and it's interesting to me that in these things, like this is just like a little bit of a list that put together. It's like, what do these manifestations look like? They look like answers to prayer. Uh, Bible verses that get applied. Visions, dreams, sensory impressions. Like I said, feeling, hearing, smelling. Prophecy, uh, uh, tongues and interpretation, counsel, healings, agreement and prayer, words of wisdom and knowledge, miracles, repentance, conviction of sin, reconciliation, deliverance, divine appointments, Bible pro promises. I was reading this week about the, the revival in China in the early 1900s, and the mark of that revival was public confession of sin. Where people would get in front of the church and, and confess the most horrendous things you've ever heard. But they said the conviction over sin and the repentance swept entire regions and thousands and thousands of people are being saved. When was the last time you were in a meeting where the conviction of sin fell? Where it's like, oh, where there's heartbreak in the body of Christ about our waywardness, about our rebelliousness, about how we live in the world and we consume and look and hear and do things that we know are wrong, but everyone else is doing it. This conviction of sin, these things, we would look at, we say, that is what's supposed to be happening in the church, those things. That should be the continual experience of the body of Christ. Which begs the question, if those things aren't happening, what do we do? Right? If we're not seeing healings, deliverance, prophecy, conviction, reconciliation, all these things, um, what do you do? And it's really interesting, because I, I just, in, in worship, I was reminded of Stephen. I love the story of the early church. The apostles are like, listen, we're preaching the word and we're praying, and like, houses are shaking, demons are cast out, like, people are getting saved, we're getting arrested, it's like, God's moving, but they have such an influx of people. They have uh, widows and orphans coming into the church. And they're like, if we're not careful, we're going to spend all of our time caring for the needy in our church and not preaching the gospel. So we've got to figure out how to do this. And I love that it says, uh, they're like, so let's select some people to do this. And what do they do? They're like, let's select some men, some men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. To wait tables in the early church, you had to have the mark of the Holy Spirit in your life to serve bread and soup to widows. And it turns out that guy who said yes to serving tables is the first martyr of the church. Can you imagine a church where it's so risky to be a Christian and to, like, to serve at the night shelter that you might be martyred? 
And can you imagine if the, the barrier to enter, entry to doing what seemed like the least amount of ministry was like, are you full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom? Like the seriousness with which the early church took the ministry that God had given them. They're like, there's no free rides here. There's no job in this church where, where you're not seeking the presence of God continually. And Stephen is this incredible um, uh, example of this. And so I, I start to think about what we do and why we do. And so one of the, one of the questions we get the most, we're, we're, we're growing um, a little bit in this church and we have new people. And it's fascinating to me, the number one Christ, uh, question on American Christians' hearts is this. I'm not gonna, I'm, this is going to be rhetorical, so answer this in your head. Okay? What do you think the number one question is on American Christian hearts? Just say it in your head. I can't say all American Christians. I can say American Christians who live in Oklahoma City who show up to this church. What's their number one question? You got it? Nod your head if you're like, I got it. Here it is. What do you do for small groups? That is the burning question on people's hearts who show up to this church continually. Well, what about small, what's, what's small groups? Not, does this church have visions, dreams, healings, miracles, repentance, conviction of sin? Not the stuff of the Bible. It's like, yeah, but what about small groups? What about community? I need a group of friends. There is immense pressure on the American church right now to deliver to people a group of friends that they can safely travel through this life with hallelujah. and be loved and cared for. I, I, I wait on that hallelujah. That's not something Jesus promises you. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, they must pick up their cross and follow me. Die to yourself. Now, if you want a small group of people to die together with, that's not a bad thing. But can I ask you real quick, many of you have been in small groups. You've been in these kind of things. You've been in church all your life. That what's on the screen right now was that regular occurrence in the small group you're in. Got heavy in here, didn't it? I'll just be honest. I led small groups for 25 years, and the answer is no. That's not the common occurrence of small group church ministry. So the question is why? Why? And I think it's because the aim, many times of the small group, is spiritual care for each other. As my buddy John Tyson would say, he'd say, what you get in American small groups is facts, cliches, and opinions. Anybody been to one of those groups? Somebody shares a fact, somebody shares a cliche, somebody shares an opinion, they're like, oh. And whoever has the best facts, cliches, and opinions ends up being the leader. Right? And again, that's not the worst way you could spend your life, but it's not the Christianity of the Bible. And that's why I think there's so many people disillusioned with the church, is because they read the Bible and then they go to church. And they go, what? what's happening here? That's why I think so many young people um, have left the church and are leaving the church, and that's why so many young people are coming to this church. Because I think when you give people an opportunity to allow Jesus to appear in your life, to manifest his presence and power and love for you, it 
secures you in a place and it does something that other things can't do. So let me just tell you, if, if you have a small group of people right now and you're seeing these things, God bless you. Keep doing it. But I just want to say the days are too evil um, and your time here is too short to waste your time in things that don't operate in these things. It's just too, your, your life is too short. It's a breath and it's gone. In my short time here, I want to see these kinds of things. I want to live in these kind of things. And I want my children to be raised in this kind of community. Where week by week at the church you go to, whether you know it or not, we are seeing deliverance, we're seeing healings, we're seeing reconciliation, we're seeing repentance of sin, we're having encounters with Jesus week by week by week because we have ordered the life of this body around his presence, around seeking his face, his, his reality. So the Bible talks about this with the, the image of fire, right? It's this thing that God shows up in ways that um, you see it, you know it, you sense it, you feel it, you smell it, right? So Moses meets God with a burning bush on fire. Like God gives him something. He appears to him. Abraham meets God in fire, right? He falls asleep. He wakes up and he sees the vision of a flaming pot as these animals are sacrificed. King David you don't think about it much, but when he sacrificed the animal on the altar, fire falls from heaven in 1 Chronicles 21 and burns up um, uh, the sacrifice. Then he does it again for King Solomon. Again, the fire of God falls and consumes this. Isaiah gets taken into a vision of heaven. What does he see? He sees, he sees fire. They takes a, a flaming coal from the altar and he puts it on his lips and he cleanses him. Um, Israel meets God, right, with fire. The mountainside's covered with fire, Mount Sinai, and they knew that they had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Paul meets Jesus, um, where the, the, uh, the blinding flash of light, it's this idea of light and fire. Apostle John, right, he sees Jesus in heaven. What is Jesus? He's basically on fire from head to toe. <laughs> he had eyes like fire. His face is shining like the sun. His feet are like bronze, but it's, it's like molten and, it, and it's shining. The early church meets God on Pentecost, right, in fire. One writer said this, Revival is God bending down to the dying embers of a fire just about to go out and breathing into it until it bursts into flame. That's what I think God wants to do in the American church. I think he wants to take the dying embers and he wants to breathe on it so it bursts into flame. So here's what we want to do. We, we want to live here with an extreme sensitivity to his appearing. Like, we, we want to be noticers. And again, I think this is something where um, it's, it's cultivated at the center and then it emanates out. Um, and, and I think you can be at your desk working a job and Jesus can appear to you in your office. I think you can do it in a lunchroom. I think you can do it in your car. I think you can do it while you're at the doctor. You're at a coffee shop. You're in your home. He you can do it with your children when you're doing nightly prayers. There's an opportunity to, to turn every moment of your life into an altar. And just say, God, the altar's here. I'm with my kids. We're praying. Would you just send fire in some way that would remind us and wake us up that you're real? and that you love us, and that you love to show up 
for those who love you, those who loved your appearing. Um, and, and this is a key, because friends, you can miss his appearing. There's, there's an entire swath of people that missed Jesus when he was in the flesh and blood on earth. They missed him. And the really fascinating thing is they didn't just miss him because his politics weren't right or his morality wasn't right or he, he hung out with the wrong people. A lot of the parables are like Jesus calls them and they're like, hey, I got to go buy this oxen. Hey, I've got this thing with my family. We've got a funeral. We got to go. You know, it's like he literally describes family busyness, like business, the business of life, the stuff of life crowds out our ability to recognize that Jesus is waiting to appear to us. Which, which means that in these days where we are, um, if, if you know this, you know it. If you don't, I'm going to tell you right now. We are riding the largest decline in the church in our country's history. So, so I just say again, congratulations, you were born <laughs> in the midst of the largest decline of Christianity our nation has ever seen. Have things been bad before? Yes, they've been bad before, but they've never been this bad. Not in our country, friends. This isn't about America and culture. This is about us. It's never been worse. We've never seen more people leaving the church. Um, they, they estimate for every 10 pastors that leave the ministry right now, we have one to replace them. In 15 years, we're going to have churches with no pastors. Maybe that's God's plan. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. I'm just saying, why is it that no one wants to do that anymore? How bad do things have to get to where people are like, I am not going into ministry. Do not give me that job. Right? Like, so, so you're in the midst of this. That's why when you say, um, what do you do for small groups? And I say, we don't do them. And your question is, why? And I would say, because they don't work to bring us this. And that kind of Christianity will not reverse the decline that we're experiencing. It's not powerful enough, friends. We need a return to the power cell of the church. And again, if, if you go to any part of the world where they are under intense pressure, you know what they do? They worship and they pray and they beg God to show up. That's what they do. They don't have kumbaya Bible studies where they just talk about, it's like, what do you think about, you know, double predestination? They're like, be quieter. Our neighbor might hear us and we'll all go to jail. <laughs> so, in these times, I, I want to encourage us with Paul's words, love his appearing. I, th I think of the, the parable of the virgins, the ones, what did they do? They didn't sin, they fell asleep. They fell asleep and their wicks weren't trimmed and the oil wasn't full and they, they missed it. So I'm going to invite the man back up and we're going to spend a moment here at the end just um, worshiping and praying into this. But I've left that up there because I want you to see those kind of things is what God made you for. Your life was made to be a vessel into the world of his miraculous power, healing, salvation, compassion, mercy. Like, you're meant, his life is meant to flow from there into you and through you into the world. And I just want to encourage you not to settle for America's version of Christianity. To just live a kind of good life and sort of show up for church every once in a while and try to give a little money and make sure your kids are good boys and good girls. Like, no, that's not enough in these days. 
It's not, and that's why I just think, it's not working. Well, what does work? What works, in my opinion, is the biblical model of response to crisis, which Joel 2 says, when things get this bad, you blow the trumpet, you call an assembly, you start to fast, you consecrate your life, and you ask God to show up. That should be our prayer. God, we need you because we cannot fix this. We can't fix it. We need you. So I found this prayer that I want to pray together. So I want you to stand to your feet. And we're going to read it out loud together. Um, and if you can, I want, I want this to be like something where... Because sometimes we come to church and we just read words and we sing words. I, I want you to allow and ask the Holy Spirit right now. So let's just take a moment. Close your eyes. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, will you allow these words to be transformed uh, from an idea to the desire of my heart? Because I don't want theoretical Christianity. I want to be transformed from glory to glory. I want the promise of 2 Corinthians 3. I want the promise of Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Not to be conformed to the world, but I want you to shake me out of the mold of the world and transform me. And I want the church, Holy Spirit, to be the place where Jesus manifests his presence. So everyone knows in this city there are places, not just one place, not just Skyline, but churches so numerous where you can come and meet the living God. You can come to know him in reality. Yeah. But there is a God in heaven who loves human beings and is not bound by time and space, but can break into this world whenever he chooses and bring fire to human hearts. So will you read this with me? Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. God of Elijah, hear our cry. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. To make us fit to live or die. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. To burn up every trace of sin. To bring the light and glory in. The revolution now begins. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Tis fire we want, for fire we plead. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. The fire will meet our every need. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. For strength to do the right, for grace to conquer in the fight, for power to walk the world in white. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. To make our weak hearts strong and brave. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. 
live a dying world to save. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Oh, see us on thy altar lay. Our lives are all this very day. To crown the offering, now we pray. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. I knew that was going to be so bad we're doing it twice. So just know I come prepared. So, like, are you ready to do it for real now? Like, everybody, like, yeah. Ready to, like, like, one of the things God's working on us about is raising our voices. Because most of you have been raised in a Christianity that is spectator-based. You've never talked out loud in church. Thank God for the black church who expresses love out loud to Jesus. Friends, that shouldn't be a cultural expression of Christianity. That should be Christianity. Christians should not be quiet. Like, like literally, like we're like the Psalms. Just go read the Psalms today. Shout. Shout to the Lord. Make a joyful noise, right? Not a not always a great noise, but joy, make it joyful. Make it loud, all right? So we're all saying the same thing, so you can be loud. Your neighbor's going to read it. If they're not, elbow them. I give you permission to be like, speak up. Shout it loud. All right, you ready? Let's do it one more time. So listen, we want to say, if you're like, hey, God, send the fire. Is he going to send the fire for that? He's like, you want fire? Seriously? Put your latte down and worship. You're like, oh, Lord, so good. Oh, man, this is nice. He's like, I want to give you fire. Ask for it. Ask for it, right? Okay, all right, let's do it. Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire. Send the fire, send the fire. God of Elijah, hear our cry. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire to make us fit to live or die. Send the fire, send the fire, send the fire.
in heaven we love 